0: Something you become very aware of as a minister is just how fragile life can be. One day you're chatting with someone after service or sharing a cup of tea or bumping into them while you're out shopping, and the next thing you know, your phone is ringing and someone is gone. Just like that. Now, sometimes that call isn't unexpected when that someone's been sick or hurt or fading for some time, but just as often it comes straight out of nowhere. No buildup, no warning, just gone, like flicking off a light switch. And all that's left of that amazing, vibrant, incredible person is our love, our memories, and a profound sense of loss. But I doubt this comes as news to anybody as all our lives have been touched by loss. But you've got to admit these past few years have really driven home just how incredibly fragile the gift of life truly is. I mean, for the past two years, we've lived in various states of lockdown as COVID-19 tore its way through our province, our country, and the world making hundreds of millions of people sick and killing more than 6 million, 218 of them in Nova Scotia alone. And despite some of the rhetoric you've heard, not all of these people were sick or old to begin with. They were parents, children, healthy young men and women who all went from fine to gone within a week. Just like that. Or how about what's going on in Ukraine right now? Russia's senseless war of aggression has already cost more than 13,000 people their lives, with thousands more yet to come. And many of them have been civilians who were sheltering in their homes, going out to get food, or in some tragic cases, while attempting to flee the conflict through green corridors. Routes guaranteed by Russia to be safe for refugees that were then shelled anyway when people tried to use them. But honestly, in the last few years, as terrible as that conflict is, it's just a drop in the bucket. The war in Yemen has claimed 370,000 lives since it started in 2011. The war in Syria, somewhere around 600,000. And the ongoing conflict in Myanmar anywhere between hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand and in most cases those numbers are still going up then there are more personal losses not caused by war or plague but gone nevertheless our love turned to grief in a split second of tragedy and that's scary to lose so many so quickly for reasons that were, to be honest, out of our control. And the first question we want to ask is why? Why are they dead and we still alive? Because we are desperate to establish some kind of causal link to find out the reason why death came for them so we can avoid it or to reassure ourselves that it won't come for us because they've done something that we haven't. But those answers, if we find any, rarely offer much comfort, as death, when it comes, often comes without rhyme or reason. And when we can't find an explanation for the things that scare us, we tend to start chalking them up to God, that it must be God's will that they died and we live. And that the dead, or those who love them, must have done something to have deserved such a fate. But we've talked about this before. God doesn't control our actions. So what we do to each other is on us and us alone. And God doesn't micromanage the universe. So in a universe governed by causality and probability... Some things happen by accident that have nothing to do with God or God's people, but that's usually where the conversation stops, isn't it? And we're left struggling to accept that the beauty of life is at least partially in its fragility, and that when death comes, it often comes through no fault of our own, which, while true, isn't exactly comforting even for those of us who do take great comfort in knowing that we're never going to be apart from God or God's love, and that eventually God is going to give us the gift of the joy of resurrection. So, we keep wrestling with it, the why of it all. And the more and more often we contend with tragedy, the more and more often we struggle with why. But as I was recently rereading Luke's Gospel, it made me wonder if asking why is really the right question. I mean, today's scripture reading starts with Jesus being told about the tragic deaths of some fellow Galileans, people he may well have known and grown up with, as Galilee isn't that big a place. And what's really got them freaked out isn't so much that they died, but in an act of state-sanctioned terror, Roman legionaries had cut them down in the middle of an act of worship. Now, as you might guess, this is a blasphemous thing to do and considered not only a horrible way to die, but a disgraceful one as well. And according to contemporary Jewish thought, that meant God had punished them for some reason. So these people who came to Jesus weren't just coming to break the bad news to him, but to ask him why it had happened at all. To help them make sense of this senseless killing. And as quick as you'd expect, Jesus shuts down that way of thinking, bluntly stating that none of those butchered were any better or worse than anyone else in Galilee, and were victims of Rome's idea of justice, not God's. And to further illustrate his point, Jesus brings up another incident in which the Tower of Siloam, which was an architectural feature of the city of Jerusalem, tragically collapsed, killing 18 people. Again, bluntly stating that none of those killed were any better or worse than anyone else in Jerusalem. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that basically jives with our understanding of the situation. And we hear Jesus acknowledging both the beauty and fragility of life, and that he accepts both the certainty and uncertainty of death without laying the blame at God's feet, which pretty much takes us right back to where we started from, wrestling with why. But then just as we're getting ready to have to live with that being the only answer we're going to get, Jesus keeps on talking until, pop, out comes something wildly unexpected. But unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Now, what's that all about? Well, as Jesus often does, he tries to fill in the gaps for us by way of a parable, And this particular parable is about a fig tree that, despite being three years old, carefully tended and planted in good soil, has yet to bear any fruit. And the owner of the vineyard's patience has run thin, and he orders the gardener to chop it down as it's a waste of good earth. But the gardener intercedes on behalf of the tree, asking for one more year, a year in which they'll give it all kinds of special attention, so that it does have the best chance possible of bearing fruit. And if it does, awesome, problem solved. And if it doesn't, well, they'll chop it down next year to see if another tree can make better use of the soil. And the usual interpretation we get is that Jesus, the gardener, is interceding on behalf of humanity, the fig tree, to protect us from the wrath of an increasingly impatient God. But I think like the gardener, we're going to have to dig a bit deeper than that if we want to get at the heart of the story. And the first thing we need to understand is that Luke has a bit of a thing for fruit. For starters, in his retelling of the story of John the Baptist, Luke has John described living in right relationship as fruit of repentance. And a little bit later, Luke has Jesus say that a tree produces fruit the way a person produces good from the goodness of their heart. And again, in the sower and the seed, Luke has Jesus say that people with good hearts hear the word of God, and by holding on to it, produce good fruit. And so, as Jeremy L. Williams puts it, for Luke, the fruit of the heart is, Is love in action. So if acts of love are the fruit of the heart, well, what's up with that tree and the gardener? Well, we're the tree. And though our hearts are expected to bear good fruit, well, often they don't. And this should kind of freak us out a bit, because like the tree in the parable, we have no idea how close we are to being chopped down. And while God and Jesus the owner and the gardener, are doing everything they can to help our hearts learn to love that way, we are running out of time. And not because of some great apocalypse is coming, but because every day that passes is a day that we don't get back. And if each day passes without any fruit, what then? Well, here's where Jesus calls on us to repent. And in contrast on how we use it, when Jesus uses the word repent, it has nothing to do with guilt or shame or even morality. What it actually means is turn around, as in reorient your life towards God and take a long, hard look at ourselves from God's point of view. Because as soon as we do, two things are going to become pretty clear to us. First, our many shortcomings are going to be pretty obvious. And second, we're going to have to admit the precarious state in which we live. And that realization is going to make a few things more clear to us, like just how urgent this message is. Because if our lives don't bear fruit, the axe is surely coming. And if that axe gets here before we've any fruit to show for it, well, I know I don't want my life to have just been wasted soil. And let's not get to thinking that just because we're still alive and kicking, that means we must have done something right. Because that barren fig tree has been growing in that vineyard for three years without a single fruit to show for it. And without that axe, could keep on living for many, many more. So what Jesus is asking us to do in the light of this profound revelation is to change the one thing we can, our mind. To repent and start bearing good fruit before we end up dead like those Galileans and Jerusalemites. Not from God's wrath, but suddenly and without warning and completely unprepared to stand before God and account for our lives. But please don't think that if we repent right now, that that's going to somehow shield us from calamity. Life doesn't work that way. Our lives will be just as fragile and vulnerable as they were before. But that very fragility brings us one final revelation. Every sacred second of life is a gift. And we live our lives in that small window of grace between birth and death that God has given us. So what should we be doing? Well, first things first, we should be rejoicing in the gift of life at the start of each new day. a little bit, and says, the first thing we should be doing is rejoicing in the gift of life at the start of each new day. Because when you think about it, today, well, that's the only day we're guaranteed to get. So we best make the most of it. And making the most of it means we need to start asking better questions, to stop asking what people did to deserve their fate because they didn't focus our hearts, and and then and we didn't focus our hearts and minds on doing good. To stop looking for someone or something to blame for our misfortune, because there isn't, and focus instead on tending to our own missing fruit. To stop asking, why God, why? Because we already know the answer. We just don't like it. And instead ask this, what will we do with the time we've been given. And that's where I'm going to leave you this morning. With an answer you won't like, a truth that's hard to accept, and a burning question we can't afford to waste time in answering. Because this amazing, incredible, unbelievably beautiful gift of life we have is short and fragile quite possibly by design so the only thing left perhaps the only thing that ever mattered is this repent change the one thing you can your mind and take a good long look at life from god's point of view and then ask yourself if life is a gift Its purpose is love, and it can end at any moment. What will you do with the time that you've been given? Now can you say amen to that?